Hello everybody and welcome back to our audiobook series on the Formula of Concord, Solid Declaration. Today we're going to be reading Article 8, which is a pretty big article. It's, uh, it's all about the person of Christ and how that fits into our theology as Lutherans. And after that, there's a teeny tiny article we're going to read and just kind of get out of the way. It's not a big deal, but it's something worth mentioning. And then next week, which will probably be our last uh, installment here in this audiobook, we're going to get into election, which is probably more exciting for a lot of our listeners. Like, wow, here's Lutherans and Calvinists duking it out. Here's the Lutheran side of it. But I don't want that to make it sound like today's article is less important than that. This is one of those sneaky topics, those sneaky subjects out there that creeps up on Christians and, well, they'll find themselves believing in heterodoxy without realizing it. So it's actually very important to understand it. And let's just go ahead and dive right in. Article 8, The Person of Christ. A controversy has likewise arisen among theologians of the Augsburg Confession concerning the person of Christ. It did not at first begin among them, however, but proceeded originally from the sacramentarians. For when Dr. Luther maintained with solid arguments the true, essential presence of the body and blood of Jesus Christ in the Lord's Supper on the basis of the words of institution, the Zwinglians countered by saying that the body of Christ could not be a true and genuine human body if it were present at the same time in heaven and in the Holy Supper on earth, since such majesty belongs to God alone, and the body of Christ is incapable of it. Dr. Luther contradicted and mightily refuted this, as his doctrinal and polemical writings concerning the Holy Supper, uh, to which we herewith publicly profess our adherence, clearly demonstrate. But after his death, a few theologians of the Augsburg Confession not quite ready to commit themselves publicly and explicitly to the sacramentarians in the doctrine of the Supper of the Lord, did operate with and use the same basic arguments about the person of Christ with which the sacramentarians ventured to eliminate from his supper the true essential presence of the body and blood of Christ. That is, they said that nothing is to be attributed to the human nature in the person of Christ that transcends or contravenes its natural essential properties. And they went so far as to load down Dr. Luther's teaching, as well as that of those who follow it, as being in harmony with the word of God, with accusations of almost all the monstrous old heresies. In order to explain this controversy in a Christian way, according to the word of God and in accordance with our plain Christian creed, and to settle it definitely by God's grace, our unanimous teaching, belief, and confession are as follows. 1. We believe, teach, and confess that although the Son of God is a separate, distinct, and complete divine person, and therefore has been from all eternity true, essential, and perfect God with the Father and the Holy Spirit, yet when the time had fully come, he took the human nature into the unity of his person, not in such a manner that there are now two persons or two Christs, but in such a way that Christ Jesus is henceforth in one personal simultaneously true eternal God, born of the Father from eternity, and also a true man, 
born of the most blessed Virgin Mary, as it is written, of their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Romans 9, verse 5. 2. We believe, teach, and confess that henceforth, in this single, undivided person, there are two distinct natures, the divine, which is from all eternity, and the human, which was assumed in time into the unity of the person of the Son of God. These two natures in the person of Christ will henceforth never be separated, blended with each other, or the one changed into the other. But in the person of Christ, each remains in its nature and essence through all eternity. 3. We furthermore believe, teach, and confess that in their nature and essence, the two natures referred to remain unmingled and unabolished so that each retains its natural properties and throughout all eternity does not lay them aside, nor do the essential properties of the one nature ever become the essential properties of the other. 4. We also believe, teach, and confess that to be almighty, to be eternal, to be infinite, to be everywhere at the same time naturally, that is, according to the property of the nature and of its natural essence, to be intrinsically present, and to know everything are essential properties of the divine nature, which throughout eternity will never become the essential properties of the human nature. 5. On the other hand, to be a corporeal being or a creature, to be flesh and blood, to be finite and circumscribed, to suffer and die, to ascend and descend, to move from one place to another, to suffer, hunger, thirst, frost, heat, and similar things are properties of the human nature, which will never will become properties of the divine nature. 6. We also believe, teach, and confess that after the Incarnation, neither nature in Christ henceforth subsists for itself so as to be or constitute a distinct person but that the two natures are united in such a way that they constitute a single person in which there are and subsist at, at the same time both the divine and the assumed human nature. So that after the incarnation, not only his divine nature, but also his assumed human nature belong to the total person of Christ. And that without his humanity, no less than without his deity, the person of Christ or the Son of God who has assumed flesh and has become man, is not complete. Therefore, Christ is not two different persons, but one single person, in spite of the fact that two distinct natures, each with its natural essence and properties, are found unblended in him. 7. We furthermore believe, teach, and confess that the assumed human nature in Christ not only possesses and retains its natural essential properties, but that in addition thereto, through the personal union with the deity and afterward through the exaltation of glorification, it has been elevated to the right hand of majesty, power, and might over every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. That's uh, from Ephesians 1 verse 21. 8. But Christ did not receive this majesty to which he was exalted according to his humanity only after his resurrection from the dead and his ascension but when he was conceived in his mother's womb and became man and when the divine and human nature were personally united. 9. 
But this personal union is not to be understood, as some have incorrectly explained it, as if both natures, the divine and the human, are united with each other like two boards glued together, so that in deed and truth the two natures allegedly have no communion at all with each other. This was the error and heresy of Nestorius and the Samosatanes, who on the witness of Suidas and Theodore, the presbyter of Raitu, taught that the two natures have no communion whatsoever with each other. This would separate the two natures from each other and thus make two Christs, so that Christ is one person and God the Word who dwells in Christ is another. Theodore the Presbyter wrote, A contemporary of the heretic Manes by the name of Paul, a native of Samosata who had become a bishop at Antioch in Syria, taught godlessly that the Lord Christ was a mere man in whom the word of God dwelled just as in each of the prophets. Hence he also held that the divine and human natures are separated and distinct from each other, and that in Christ they have no communion at all, just as if Christ were one individual and God the word who dwells in him another. End quote. In opposition to this condemned heresy, the Christian church has always held in simple faith that the divine and human natures in the person of Christ are united in such a way that they have true communion with each other, by which the natures are not blended into one essence, but, as Dr. Luther writes, into one person. On account of this personal union and communion, the ancient teachers of the church, both before and after the Council of Chalcedon, have often used the term mixture in a good sense and with the right distinction. We could adduce many testimonies on this point from the fathers, if it were necessary, and have frequently quoted them in our writings. The fathers further illustrated the personal union and communion by analogies of the soul and the body and of glowing iron. For the body and soul, as well as fire and iron, have a communion with each other, not only after a manner of speaking and in a strictly verbal fashion, but in deed and in truth. Yet there is not introduced thereby any sort of blending or equalization of the natures, as mead is made out of honey and water and ceases to be distinguishably either water or honey, but as a blended beverage. But the union of the divine and human natures in the person of Christ is far different from this. For the communion and union between the divine and the human nature in the person of Christ is far different, much higher and more ineffable, since on account of this union and communion, God is man and man is God, but without thereby blending the natures or their properties. On the contrary, each nature retains its essence and properties. On account of this personal union, without which such a true communion of the natures is unthinkable and impossible, it is not only the bare human nature, whose property it is to suffer and to die, that has suffered for the sin of the world, but the Son of God himself has truly suffered, although according to the assumed human nature. And in the words of our plain Christian creed, has truly died, although the divine nature can neither suffer nor die. Dr. Luther has explained this thoroughly in his great confession concerning the Holy Supper against the blasphemous Aliosis of Zwingli, who taught that one nature must be taken and understood for the other. Luther called this the devil's mask and damned it to the depths of hell. For this reason, the ancient teachers of the church have combined both words 
communion, and union, in expounding this mystery and have explained th- the one through the other. Uh, Irenaeus, Book 4, Chapter 3, uh, Athanasius in his letter to Epictetus, Hilary on the Trinity, Book 9, Basil and Gregory of Nyssa in Theodoret, uh, John Damascene, Book 3, Chapter 19. Because of this personal union and communion of the divine and human natures in Christ, according to our plain Christian creed, we believe, teach, and confess everything that is said about the majesty of Christ according to his human nature at the right hand of the almighty power of God, and everything that follows from it. If the personal union and communion of the natures in the person of Christ did not exist in deed and truth, all this would be nothing nor could it even be. On account of this personal union and communion of the natures, Mary, the most blessed virgin, did not conceive a mere ordinary human being, but a human being who is truly the son of the Most High God, as the angel testifies. He demonstrated his divine majesty even in his mother's womb, in that he was born of a virgin without violating her virginity. Therefore, she is truly the mother of God and yet remained a virgin. On this basis, likewise, Christ performed all his miracles and manifested his divine majesty according to his good pleasure, when and how he wanted to. He did not. He did so not only after his resurrection and ascension, but also in the state of his humiliation. For example, at the wedding in Cana of Galilee, again when he was twelve years old among the teachers, again in the garden with, with one word he struck his enemies to the ground, and again in death, when he died not just like another man, but in such a way that by and in his death he conquered sin, death, the devil, hell, and eternal damnation. The human nature could not have accomplished this if it had not been personally united with the divine nature and had communion with it. Hence also the human nature has, after the resurrection from the dead, its exaltation above all creatures in heaven and on earth. This is precisely that he is laid aside completely and entirely the form of a servant, without, however, laying aside the human nature which he retains throughout eternity, and has been installed in the complete exercise and use of the divine majesty according to the assumed human nature. He had this majesty immediately at his conception, even in his mother's womb, but, as the apostle testifies, he laid it aside, and as Dr. Luther explains it, he kept it hidden during the state of his humiliation and did not use it at all times, but only when he wanted to. But now, since he ascended into heaven, not just like some other saint, but in the words of the apostle, Ephesians 4 verse 10, far above all heavens, that he might truly fill all things, he is everywhere present to rule, not only as God, but also as man, from sea to sea and to the ends of the earth, as the prophets foretell, Psalm 8, verse 6, Psalm 93, verse 1, and Zechariah 9, verse 10. And as the apostles testify that he worked with them everywhere and confirmed the message by the signs that attended it, Mark 16, verse 20. Yet this does not take place in a mundane way, but as Dr. Luther explains after the manner of the right hand of God, which is not a specific place in heaven, as the sacramentarians maintain without proof from the holy scriptures. The right hand of God is precisely the almighty power of God, which fills heaven and earth, in which Christ has been installed according to his humanity in deed and in truth, without any blending or equalization of the two natures in their essence and essential properties, 
Because of this communicated power, he can be and is truly present with his body and blood in the Holy Supper according to the words of his covenant, to which he has directed us through his word. No other human being can do this, since no human being is united in this manner with the divine nature and installed in the exercise of the divine, omnipotent majesty and power through and in the personal union of both natures in Christ, the way Jesus, the Son of Mary, is. In him, the divine and human natures are personally united in such a way that in Christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That's Colossians 2 verse 9. And in this personal union, they have such an exalted, intimate, and ineffable communion that even the angels marvel at it and find their delight and joy in looking into it, as St. Peter testifies in 1 Peter 1 verse 12. This we shall discuss in greater detail below. The doctrine of an exchange of properties, or communicatio idiomatum in uh, Latin, that is, of a true communication of the properties of the natures, likewise flows from this same foundation, as we have indicated above and as we have explained the personal union, that is, the fact that the divine and human natures of Christ are united with each other in such a way that they not only have names in common, but also indeed and truth have communion between each other without any blending or equalization of the natures in their essence. Of this too we shall say more below. Since it is true that each nature retains its essential properties and that these are not separated from one nature and poured into the other nature the way water is poured from one container into another, an exchange of properties could not take place or continue if the personal union or communion of natures in the person of Christ did not truly exist. Next to the article of the Holy Trinity, the greatest mystery in heaven and on earth is the personal union. As Paul says, great indeed is the mystery of our religion. God was manifested in the flesh. 1 Timothy 3 verse 16. Since St. Peter testifies with clear words that even we, in whom Christ dwells only by grace, have in Christ, because of this exalted mystery, become partakers of the divine nature, Second Peter 1 verse 4, what kind of participation in the divine nature must that be of which the apostle says that in Christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, Colossians 2 verse 9, in such a way that God and man are a single person? It is highly important that this doctrine of the exchange of properties between the two natures be treated and explained with due discrimination, because the statements that we make about the person of Christ, its natures, and their properties are not all of the same kind and mode, and if one talks about them without due discrimination, the doctrine becomes tangled up and the simple reader is easily misled. The following presentation should be noted diligently. For the sake of a better and simpler presentation, it can be comprehended under three main points. In the first place, since in Christ two distinct natures are and remain unchanged and unblended in their natural essence and properties, and since both natures constitute only one person, therefore any property, though it belongs only to one of the natures, is ascribed not only to the respective nature as something separate, but to the entire person who is simultaneously God and man, whether he is called God or whether he is called man. 
But in this mode of speaking, it does not follow that whatever is ascribed to the person is simultaneously the property of both natures. On the contrary, it is distinctly explained according to which nature the property in question is being ascribed to the person. Thus, for example, uh, quote, the son was descended from David according to the flesh, Romans 1 verse 3, and Christ was put to death in the flesh and suffered for us in the flesh, 1 Peter 3 verse 18 and 4 verse 1. But since secret as well as open sacramentarians hide their pernicious error under the words of the formula which says that we are to ascribe the entire person what is the property of one nature. For while they mention the entire person, they nevertheless understand by that only the one nature and wholly eliminate the other nature, as if, for instance, only the human nature had suffered for us. And since Dr. Luther, in his great confession concerning the Holy Supper, has written about Zwingli's aliosis, we shall here quote Dr. Luther's own words so that the Church of God may be forearmed in the best possible way against this error. His words read, quote, Zwingli calls that an aliosis when something is said about the deity of Christ, which after all belongs to the humanity, or vice versa. For example, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Luke 24, verse 26. Here, Zwingli performs a sleight-of-hand trick and substitutes the human nature for Christ. Beware, beware, I say, of this aliosis, for it is the devil's mask, since it will finally construct a kind of Christ after whom I would not want to be called a Christian, that is, a Christ who is and does no more in his passion and death than any other ordinary saint. But if I believe that only the human nature suffered for me, then Christ would be a poor savior for me. In fact, he himself would need a savior. In short, it is indescribable what the devil attempts with this aliosis. And shortly thereafter, he states, If the old witch, Dame Reason, the grandmother of the aliosis, would say that the deity surely cannot suffer and die, then you must answer and say that is true. But since the divinity and humanity are one person in Christ, the scriptures ascribe to the deity, because of this personal union, all that happens to the humanity and vice versa. And this is likewise within the bounds of truth. For you must say that the person, pointing to Christ, suffers, dies. But this person is truly God, and therefore it is correct to say the Son of God suffers. Although, so to speak, the one part, namely the deity, does not suffer, nevertheless the person who is true God suffers in the other part, namely in the humanity. For the Son of God truly is crucified for us, that is, this person who is God, for that is what he is. This person, I say, is crucified according to the humanity. If Zwingli's aliosis stands, then Christ will have to be two persons, one a divine and the other a human person. Since Zwingli applies all the texts concerning the passion only to the human nature and completely excludes them from the divine nature, but if the works are divided and separated, the person will also have to be separated, since all the doing and suffering are not ascribed to the natures, but to the person. It is the person who does and suffers everything, the one thing according to this nature and the other thing according to the other nature, all of which scholars know right well. Therefore, we regard our Lord Christ as God and man in one person, 
neither confounding the natures nor dividing the person, end quote. Likewise, Dr. Luther states in his treatise concerning the councils and the church, quote, We Christians must know that unless God is in the balance and throws in weight as a counterbalance, we shall sink to the bottom with our scale. I mean that this way. If it is not true that God died for us, but only a man died, we are lost. But if God's death and God's death lie in the opposite scale, then his side goes down and we go upward like a light and empty pan. Of course, he can also go up again or jump up out of his pan, but he could never have sat in the pan unless he had become a man like us, so that it could be said, God dead, God's passion, God's blood, God's death. According to his nature, God cannot die. But since God and man are united in one person, it is correct to talk about God's death when that man dies who is one thing or one person with God. End quote. So far, Luther. From this, it is evident that it is wrongly put to say or to write that the cited locutions, God suffered, God died, are merely empty words which do not correspond to reality. For our plain Christian creed teaches us that the Son of God, who was made man, suffered for us, died, and redeemed us with his blood. In the second place, as far as the discharge of Christ's office is concerned, the person does not act in, with, through, or according to one nature only, but in, according to, with, and through both natures. Or as the Council of Chalcedon declares, each nature, according to its own properties, acts in communion with the other. Thus Christ is our mediator, redeemer, king, high priest, head, shepherd, and so forth, not only according to one nature only, either the divine or the human, but according to both natures, as we presented this matter previously. But it is an entirely different matter when, in the third place, the question being treated in the discussion is this. Do the natures in the personal union have nothing else and nothing more than their own natural and essential properties, which has been indicated above they have and retain? Since there is no variation with God, James 1 verse 17, nothing was added to or detracted from the essence and properties of the divine nature in Christ through the incarnation, nor was the divine nature intrinsically diminished or augmented thereby. As far as the assumed human nature in the person of Christ is concerned, some wanted to contend that even in the personal union with the deity, the human nature has nothing else and nothing more than its own natural essential properties alone, according to which it is in every respect made like its brethren, and that for this reason nothing should or can be ascribed to the human nature in Christ which transcends or contravenes its natural properties, even though the testimony of the scripture points in that direction. But it is so clear on the basis of God's word that this opinion is erroneous and false, that even their own co-religionists now criticize and reject this error. The holy scriptures and the ancient fathers on the basis of the scriptures testify mightily that because the human nature in Christ is personally united with the divine nature in Christ, the former when it was glorified and exalted to the right hand of the majesty and power of God, after the form of the servant had been laid aside, and after the humiliation, 
received in addition to its natural, essential, and abiding properties, special, high, great, supernatural, unsearchable, ineffable, heavenly prerogatives and privileges in majesty, glory, power, and might above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. Uh, that is Ephesians 1 verse 21. Accordingly, for the exercise of Christ's office, the human nature in Christ is employed after its own measure and fashion along with the other, and has its power and efficacy not only from and according to its natural and essential properties, or only as far as their capacity extends, but primarily from and according to the majesty, glory, power, and might which the human nature has received through the personal union, glorification, and exaltation. This even the adversaries cannot and dare not any longer deny. However, they argue and contend that the gifts with which the human nature in Christ is endowed and adorned are created gifts or finite qualities, as in the saints, and on the basis of their own calculations and from their own arguments and demonstrations, they attempt to determine and to fix the limit of what the human nature in Christ could or should be capable or incapable without being destroyed. But the best, safest, and most certain way in this controversy is to realize that no one can know better and more thoroughly than the Lord Christ himself what Christ has received through the personal union, glorification, or exaltation according to his assumed human nature, and what of what his assumed human nature is capable over and above its natural properties without being destroyed. In his word, he has revealed to us as much as we need to know in this life, and wherever the scriptures in this case give us clear, certain testimony, we shall simply believe it, and not argue that the human nature in Christ is not capable of it. The statement is, of course, correct and true that Christ's human nature in and by itself possesses all the created gifts which have been given to it. But these do not measure up to the majesty which the scriptures and the ancient fathers on the basis of the scriptures ascribe to the assumed human nature in Christ. For to give life, to execute all judgment, to have all authority in heaven and on earth, to have all things given into his hands, to have all things under his feet, to cleanse from sin, and so forth, are not created gifts, but divine and infinite qualities. Yet according to the statement of the scriptures, these properties have been given and communicated to the man Christ. John 5 verse 21, 5 verse 27, chapter 6 verse 39 and 40, Matthew 28 verse 18, Daniel 7 verse 14, John uh, 3 verse 31 and 3 verse 35, chapter 13 verse 3. Matthew 11 verse 27, Ephesians 1 22, Hebrews 2 8, 1 Corinthians 15 27, and John 1 verses 3 and 10. There are three strong and irrefutable arguments which show that this communication is not merely a matter of words, but is to be understood of the person not only according to the divine nature, but also according to the assumed human nature. These reasons are the following. 1. In the first place, it is a unanimously accepted rule of the entire ancient Orthodox Church that whatever the scriptures testify that Christ received in time, he received not according to his divine nature, according to which he is uh, everything from all eternity, but that the person received this in time according to the assumed human nature. 2. In the second place, Scripture testifies clearly, John 5, 21 um, and 27, chapter 6, verses 39 and 40, 
that the power to make the dead alive and to execute judgment has been given to Christ because he is the Son of Man, and inasmuch he has flesh and blood. 3. In the third place, Scripture not only speaks in general terms of the person of the Son of Man, but expressly points to his assumed human nature when it states, The blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. 1 John 1 verse 7. This does not refer only to the merit that was once achieved on the cross. John is saying that in this passage, that in the work or matter of our justification, not only the divine nature in Christ, but also his blood actually cleanses us from all sins. Likewise, John 6 verses 48 through 58 says that Christ's flesh is a life-giving food. And accordingly, the council of Ephesus decreed that the flesh of Christ has the power to give life. Many other noble testimonies of the ancient Orthodox Church concerning this article are recorded elsewhere. According to the scriptures, we should and must believe that Christ received all this according to his human nature, and that it was all given and communicated to the assumed human nature in Christ. But as we said above, since both natures in Christ are united in such a way that they are not blended together, or the one is changed into the other, and since each retains its natural and essential properties in such a way that the properties of the one nature never become the properties of the other nature, we must correctly explain this doctrine and defend it against all heresies. In this matter, we have not developed a new doctrine of our own, but we accept and repeat the statements which the ancient Orthodox Church made herein on the basis of sound passages of the Holy Scriptures, namely that such divine power, life, might, majesty, and glory were not given to Christ's um, assumed human nature in the same way in which the Father communicated his own essence and all the divine properties from eternity to the Son according to the divine nature, so that he is of one essence with the Father and equal with God. For only according to the divine nature is Christ equal with the Father, but according to the assumed human nature he is below God. From this it is evident that we do not confuse, equalize, or abolish the natures in Christ. Thus also the power to give life is not in the flesh of Christ the way it is in his divine nature, that is, as an essential property. This exchange or communication did not take place through an essential or natural outpouring of the properties of the divine nature into the human nature in such a way that the humanity of Christ has them of itself and apart from the divine essence, nor in such a way that the human nature in Christ has completely laid aside its natural and essential properties, and is now either transformed into the Godhead, or by means of these communicated properties has become intrinsically equal with the Godhead, nor in such a way that the natural essential properties and acts of both natures are henceforth of the same kind or even identical. These and similar erroneous doctrines have been justly rejected and condemned in the ancient approved councils on the basis of the scriptures. For in no way should any conversion, blending, or equalization of the natures in Christ or of their essential properties be taught or conceded. We have never understood the term real exchange, a communication or exchange that takes place in deed and in truth, to describe any essential, natural exchange or transfusion which would blend the natures in their essence and in their essential properties. Some of our opponents, against their own conscience, have maliciously and wickedly twisted our words and terminology in this direction in order to cast suspicion on the true, pure doctrine. We have used this term 
merely in opposition to a verbal exchange, the doctrine which these people advance, namely that it is all only a mode of speech, mere words, titles, and names. They have insisted so strongly on this that they will hear of no other exchange. To set forth correctly the majesty of Christ by way of contrast, we have spoken of a real exchange in order to indicate thereby that such an exchange has occurred in deed and in truth, but without any blending of the natures and of their essential properties. We therefore hold and teach within the ancient Orthodox Church, as it explained this doctrine on the basis of Scripture, that the human nature in Christ has received this majesty according to the manner of the personal union, that is, because the fullness of deity dwells in Christ, Colossians 2 verse 9. Not as in other godly human beings or in the angels, but bodily, as in its own body. This fullness shines forth with all its majesty, power, glory, and efficacy in the assumed nature, spontaneously and when and where he wills. In, with, and through the same, he manifests and exercises his divine power, glory, and efficacy, as the soul does in the body in fire and glowing iron, analogies which the entire ancient church used in explaining this doctrine as we stated above. During the time of the humiliation, the divine majesty was concealed and restrained. But now, since the form of a slave has been laid aside, it takes place fully, mightily, and publicly before all the saints in heaven and on earth. And in yonder life we shall behold his glory face to face. John 17, verse 24. Thus there is and remains in Christ only a single divine omnipotence, power, majesty, and glory, which is the property of the divine nature alone. But it shines forth and manifests itself fully, although always spontaneously, in, with, and through the assumed exalted human nature of Christ. Just as in glowing iron there are not two powers of illumination and combustion, the power of illumination and combustion is the property of fire. Uh, but since the fire is united with the iron, it demonstrates and manifests its power of illumination and combustion in and through the iron in such a way that on that account and through this union, the glowing uh, iron has the power of illumination and combustion without any transformation of the natural properties of either the fire or the iron. Hence, we do not understand the testimonies of the scriptures which speak of the majesty to which the human nature of Christ has been exalted, either as if this divine majesty, which is the property of the divine nature of the Son of God, is to be ascribed in the person of the Son of Man only according to his divine nature, or as if this majesty is in Christ's human nature only in such a way that it merely shares the bare titles and the names and words alone, while in deed and in truth the human nature has no share in the divine majesty. If that were so, since God is a spiritual and indivisible essence and is therefore everywhere present in all creatures, and since in whomever he is, especially believers and saints, he dwells, and since he there has his majesty with and about him at all times, it could be said with equal truth that in all creatures in whom God is, but especially in believers in whom God dwells, there likewise the fullness of deity dwells bodily. There likewise are hid all treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and to them all authority in heaven and on earth is given. For the Spirit, who has all power, has been given to them. In this way, no distinction would be made between Christ according to his human nature and other holy people, and thus Christ would be robbed of his majesty, 
which as a human being, and according to his human nature, he is received above all creatures. For no other creature, whether man or angel, can or should say, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Matthew 28, verse 18. For while it is true that God, together with the whole fullness of deity, which he always has with him, dwells in believers, he does not do so bodily, nor is he personally united with them, as is the case in Christ. It is because of the personal union that Christ says, also according to the human nature, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Matthew 28 verse 18. Likewise, when Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into his hands, John 13 verse 3. Likewise, in him dwells the whole fullness of deity bodily. Colossians 2 9. Likewise, thou hast crowned him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Hebrews 2, 7 and 8. And he is accepted who put all things under him. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 27. We do not in any way believe, teach, and confess an outpouring of the majesty of God and all its properties into the human nature of Christ of such a kind that thereby the divine nature is weakened or surrenders to another something that belongs to it without keeping it for itself. Nor do we believe that in its substance and essence the human nature allegedly received equal majesty, separated or divided from the nature and essence of the Son of God as when water, wine, or oil is poured from one container into another. For the human nature, like every other creature in heaven or on earth, is not capable of the omnipotence of God in such a way that it would become an omnipotent essence intrinsically or have omnipotent properties intrinsically. Thereby, Christ's human nature would be denied and completely transformed into the Godhead. This is contrary to our Christian creed and to the entire prophetic and apostolic doctrine. But... We believe, teach, and confess that God the Father gave his spirit to Christ his beloved Son according to the assumed human nature, whence he is called Messiah or the Anointed, in such a way that he received the Spirit's gifts not by measure like other saints, the spirit of wisdom and understanding of counsel and might and knowledge, Isaiah 11, 2 and 61 verse 1, does not rest upon Christ the Lord according to his assumed human nature according to the deity he is of one essence with the holy spirit in such a manner as that as a man he therefore knows and can do only certain things in the way in which other saints know and can do things through the holy spirit who endows them only with created gifts rather since christ according to the godhead is the second person of the holy trinity and the holy spirit proceeds from him as well as from the father and therefore he is and remains to all eternity his and his father's uh, own spirit who is never separated from the son it follows that through personal union the entire fullness of the spirit as the ancient fathers say is communicated to christ according to the flesh that is personally united with the son of god this fullness demonstrates and manifests itself spontaneously and with all power in, with, and through the human nature. The result is not that he knows only certain things and does not know certain other things or that he can do certain things and cannot do certain other things, but that he knows and can do everything. 
the Father poured out upon him without measure the spirit of wisdom and power, so that as a man, through the personal union, he really and truly has received all knowledge and all power. In this way, all the treasures of wisdom are hid in him, and all authority is given to him, and he is exalted to the right hand of the majesty and power of God. The histories tell us that during the time of Emperor Valens, there was a peculiar sect among the Aryans called the Agnoites, who taught that the Son, the Father's Word, indeed knows all things, but that according to his assumed human nature, many things are unknown to him. Against this sect, Gregory the Great also wrote. Because of this personal union, and the resultant communion that the divine and human natures have with each other in deed and truth in the person of Christ, things are attributed to Christ according to the flesh, that the flesh, according to its nature and essence outside of this union, cannot intrinsically be or have. For example, that his flesh is truly a life-giving food and his blood truly a quickening beverage, as the 200 fathers in the Council of Ephesus attested when they stated that Christ's flesh is a life-giving flesh. Once only this man and no other human being in heaven and on earth can say truthfully, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. That's uh, Matthew 18, verse 20. Likewise, I am with you always, even to the close of the age. Matthew 28, verse 20. We do not understand these testimonies to mean that only the deity of Christ is present with us in the Christian church and community, and that this presence of Christ in no way involves his humanity. If that were true, Peter, Paul, and all the saints in heaven would also be with us on earth, because the Godhead, which is everywhere, dwells in them. The scriptures ascribe such presence only to Christ and to no other human being. We believe that the cited passages illustrate the majesty of the man Christ, which Christ received according to his humanity at the right hand of the majesty and power of God, so that also according to and with this same assumed human nature of his, Christ can be and is present wherever he wills, and in particular that he is present with his church and community on earth as mediator, head, king, and high priest. Not only, not part or only one half of the person of Christ, but the entire person to which both natures, the divine and the human, belong is present. He is present not only according to his deity, but also according to and with his assumed human nature, according to which he is our brother and we flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone, Ephesians 5 verse 30. To make certainty and assurance doubly sure on this point, he instituted his holy supper that he might be present with us, dwell in us, and work and be mighty in us according to that nature too, according to which he has flesh and blood. On the basis of this solid foundation, Dr. Luther of blessed memory has written about the majesty of Christ according to the human nature. In the great confession concerning the holy supper, he writes about the person of Christ. Quote, since he is a man like this, and apart from this man there is no God, it must follow that according to the third supernatural manner, he is and can be everywhere that God is, and everything is full of Christ through and through, also according to the humanity. Not, of course, according to the first corporeal comprehensible manner, but according to the super, uh, supernatural divine manner. Here you must take your stand and st say that wherever Christ is according to the deity, he is there as a natural divine person and is also naturally and personally there as his conception in his mother's womb proves conclusively. For if he was the son of God, 
he had to be in his mother's womb naturally and personally and become man. But if he is present naturally and personally wherever he is, then he must be man there too, since he is not two separate persons, but a single person. Wherever this person is, it is the single indivisible person. And if you can say, here is God, then you must also say, Christ the man is present too. And if you could show me one place where God is and not the man, then the person is already divided, and I could at once say truthfully, here is God who is not man and has never become man. But no God like that for me. For it would follow from this that space and place had separated the two natures from one another, and thus had divided the person, even though death and all the devils had been unable to separate and tear them apart. And he would remain a poor Christ for me, if he were present only at one single place as a divine and human person, and if at all other places he would have to be nothing more than a mere isolated God and a divine person without the humanity. No, comrade, wherever you put God down for me, you must also put the humanity down for me. They simply will not let themselves be separated and divided from each other. He has become one person and never separates the assumed humanity from himself. End quote. In his tract, Concerning the Last Words of David, which he wrote shortly before his death, Dr. Luther states, quote, According to the second, temporal, human birth, the eternal power of God is also given to him in a temporal way, however, and not from eternity. For the humanity of Christ has not, like the deity, existed from eternity. But according to our calendar, Jesus, the son of Mary, is 1,543 years old this year. But from the moment that the deity and the humanity were united in one person, this man, Mary's son, is and is called the Almighty and Everlasting God, who by virtue of the exchange of qualities has eternal power and has created and preserved everything because he is one person with the deity and is true God. This is what he means when he says, All things have been delivered to me by my Father, Matthew 11, verse 27, and all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Matthew 28, verse 18. What me? To me, Jesus of Nazareth, Mary's son, born of a human being. From eternity I have this authority from the Father before I became man, but when I became man I received it in time according to the humanity and concealed it until my resurrection and ascension, when it was to have been revealed and demonstrated. As St. Paul says, he is designated the Son of God in power. Romans 1 verse 4, and John calls it glorified. John 7 verse 39 and 17 verse 10. End quote. There are many similar testimonies in Dr. Luther's writings, especially in the book um, That These Words Still Stand Firm, and in his great confession concerning the Holy Supper. For the sake of brevity, we here merely go on record as having appealed to these as being clear expositions of the majesty of Christ at the right hand of God in connection with this article, as well as of the covenant, his covenant in the Holy Supper in connection with the previous article. Hence we consider it a pernicious error to deprive Christ according to his humanity of this majesty. To do so robs Christians of their highest comfort, afforded them in the cited promises of the presence and indwelling of their head, king, and high priest, who has promised that not only his unveiled deity, which to us poor sinners is like a consuming fire on dry stubble, which will be with them, but that he, 
He, the man who has spoken with them, who has tasted every tribulation in his assumed human nature, and who can therefore sympathize with us as with men and his brethren, he wills to be with us in all our troubles, also according to that nature by which he is our brother and we are flesh of his flesh. Therefore, we unanimously reject and condemn with mouth and heart all errors which are inconsistent with the doctrine here set forth as contrary to the prophetic and apostolic writings, the Orthodox creeds, and our Christian Augsburg Confession. 1. If anyone were to believe or teach that because of the personal union the human nature has allegedly been blended with the divine or has been transformed into it. 2. Likewise, that the human nature in Christ is everywhere present in the same way as the deity, as an infinite essence through an essential power or property of its nature. 3. Likewise, that the human nature in Christ has been equalized with and has become equal to the divine nature in its substance and essence or in its essential properties. 4. Likewise, that the humanity of Christ is locally extended into every place in heaven and earth, something which ought not be attributed to the deity. Without transforming or destroying his human nature, Christ's omnipotence and wisdom can readily pro uh, provide that through his divine omnipotence, Christ can be present with his body, which he has placed at the right hand of the majesty and power of God, wherever he desires, and especially where he has promised his presence in his word, as in the Holy Communion. 5. Likewise, that the mere human nature of Christ alone, with which the Son of God had no communion whatever in the passion, suffered for us and redeemed us. 6. Likewise, that in the preached word and in the right use of the holy sacraments, Christ is present with us on earth only according to his deity, and that his presence does not involve his assumed human nature in any way whatever. 7. Likewise, that the assumed human nature in Christ does not share in deed and truth in the divine power, might, wisdom, majesty, and glory, but has only the bare title and name in common with it. 8. We reject and condemn these errors and all others that contradict and contravene the above doctrine as being contrary to the pure word of God, the writings of the holy prophets and apostles, and our Christian creed and confession. Since the holy scriptures call Christ a mystery over which all heretics break their heads, we admonish all Christians not to pry presumptuously into this mystery with their reason, but with the holy apostles simply to believe, close the eyes of reason, take their intellect captive to obey Christ, comfort themselves therewith, and rejoice constantly that our flesh and blood have in Christ been made to sit so high at the right hand of the majesty and almighty power of God. In this way they will be certain to find abiding comfort in all adversities, and will be well protected against pernicious errors. Amen and amen. Now, we're going to read Article 9 here, which is exactly two paragraphs. I believe this is the shortest statement in all of the solid declaration. We'll do that right before we go. Article 9. Christ's Descent into Hell. Different explanations of the article on Christ's descent into hell have been discovered among some of our theologians, just as among the ancient teachers of the Christian church. Hence, we let matters rest on the simple statement of our Christian creed, to which Dr. Luther directs us in the sermon that he held in the castle at Torgau in the year 1533. Quote, I believe in the Lord Christ, God's Son, who died, was buried, and descended into hell. 
Herein, the burial and the descent into hell are differentiated as distinct articles, and we simply believe that after the burial, the entire person, God and man, descended into hell, conquered the devil, destroyed hell's power, and took from the devil all his might. We are not to concern ourselves with exalted and acute speculations about how this occurred. With our reason and five senses, this article cannot be comprehended any more than the preceding one, how Christ has been made to sit at the right hand of the almighty power and majesty of God. We must only believe and cling to the word. Then we shall retain the heart of this article and derive from it the comfort that neither hell nor the devil can take us or any believer in Christ captive or harm us. Amen and amen. I love, love, love that these reformers writing here with the most detailed explanation of the two natures in the person of Christ. When it comes to the harrowing of hell, they say, here's what we know. Now, on all those other questions and debates, we have no clue. <laughs> they know when to teach their tongue to say, I don't know. But anyway, I will see you all next week for what will probably be the last of these recordings here so that you have at your fingertips the entirety of the formula of Concord. See you all next week. Amen and amen.